Well, if you'll turn in the scriptures with me to Psalm 15. Psalm 15. The psalm we sang earlier in our service is where the Lord will have us tonight. We'll take the entirety of the psalm uh, as our text and meditate here with the Lord's help. Psalm 15, beginning reading, verse 1, let us hear the word of God. Psalm 15, a psalm of David. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor, in whose eyes a vile person is contemned, but he honoreth them that fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. He that putteth not out his his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. Amen. Trust the Lord to bless His word to all of our hearts. Let us ask for His help one final time. Our Father in heaven, we come pleading the blood of Christ, knowing that we need the power of the Holy Spirit to attend the preaching of Your word, Lord, we, this meeting will be in vain, except thy spirit move upon us, except we know thy spirit ministering the word to us, O Lord, in a way that no mere man can do. O Lord, please apply this word to all of our hearts. Grant us uh, understanding that we may understand the scriptures. Guide us through this psalm. Guide our meditation, O Lord. Establish our thoughts, Lord, for we commit our ways unto thee and ask that you would indeed bless the Word of God, to all of our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Psalm 15, uh, brothers and sisters, uh, is where the Lord will have us tonight. And really, uh, verse 1 serves as a great introduction to this psalm. It's a very practical question. It's a question that a lot of people in this world ask. And you'll see what I mean. The psalmist opens up as a psalm of David. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? The tabernacle being the place of worship in the Old Testament, being the place where God's glory was manifested. In other words, it's the place where his immediate presence was known where it was symbolized and and experienced by the people of God. And the psalmist is asking, who shall abide there? Who Who shall sojourn or live there? In other words, who has the right to be there in his presence? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? Well, the Lord's holy hill usually refers to Zion or Jerusalem, the city of God. And so what we have here is really the psalmist is asking the question, Lord, who will be allowed to live 
and your immediate presence and be a citizen in thy kingdom. Who, Lord? Who will be allowed such a privilege? Who will be allowed to be in His presence? Now we're talking about the Lord. The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. He who keeps mercy for thousands, but he who also is just and holy, whose name is holy. And that's why this question is so important. Because it's a discriminating question. It implies that there are certain requirements to be in the immediate presence of God. That's the obvious implication. The psalmist is asking, who who qualifies for this? And there's also a discriminating answer, which we will see. For the rest of the psalm details the answer of the character of the person that has the right to be in the presence of God and never be removed. This is a very practical question. The psalmist is asking, in, in, in our terms today, we might say you ask people on the street, are you going to heaven? And people will often say, well, I go to church. I was baptized at some point in my life. And they're looking to those things to get them into heaven. And you and I both know, or at least I trust we all know, that none of those things are going to give you the merit you need to be in the presence of God for eternity. But this is the question the psalmist is asking. And this is why we're here. Because this psalm, I suggest to you, is about Christ. It is about Christ. It is about the practical righteousness of Christ. And that is what I want us to consider this message, this psalm as. uh, It's the practical righteousness of Christ that's in view. Because as we come to consider these verses, you're going to see really what's here is is the two great commandments on display. When, When Jesus was asked, what are the great commandments? He essentially said to love God and to love your neighbor. He said to love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love your neighbor as yourself. And that is what's on display as we go through this psalm. And I'll go ahead and tell you, the application will be very much the same for the lost or the saved. You need the righteousness here displayed. The righteousness of Christ. You need it imputed to you. Credited to your account. And once it's been credited to your account, you need to, by the grace of God, imitate it as a follower of Christ. And so, consider with me the practical righteousness of Christ. And the first thing I want us to see here is the general description of this righteousness. The general description of this righteousness. Verses 2 through 3. Following the psalmist's question, the answer of the Holy Spirit is, He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. 
the general description of this righteousness. And the first thing here we want to see is that this righteousness is described positively. It's described positively in verse 2. There's all these positives. You'll see that, and you'll see that in the other verses as well. It's verse 2 is positive, verse 3 is negative, verse 4 is positive, verse 5 is negative. Setting before us the practicality of Christ's righteousness. So as we think about the positive description of this righteousness, we want to see that this is he who walks uprightly. He walks uprightly. That's the character. That's the description we're given of the person who's going to dwell with God, who has the right to be in the immediate presence of God. He walks uprightly. Now, the word walk has the idea of behavior or living. When we think of walking, you see that term used in all the Bible, Enoch walked with God. You see it in the New Testament. They were to walk worthy of God. And it's the idea of living. It's how we live, how we behave. And then that word uprightly is very interesting. Uh, it's used in several places. But in connection with what we're considering here, one of the most interesting places that it is used is Exodus 12.5. You can turn there with me if you like, but it won't be very long. It's just a quick reference. But Exodus 12.5, I want you to listen to where you think this word might occur in this verse. The Lord is preparing His people for the Passover. And He says to them, Your lamb shall be without blemish. Your lamb shall be without blemish. That's the word. Without blemish. He walks uprightly. In other words, what the psalmist is saying here as we think about Christ is that His walk was without blemish. His walk was without any mark of deformity. There was nothing impure about His walk. He walked, He lived without blemish. He lived sinlessly. This is the one, He that walketh uprightly. And all through this psalm, I'll go ahead and say this, all through this psalm, we are all going to see how far we fall short of this standard. And every time we're, that's brought before us in the Scriptures, it is to drive us to Christ. It is to drive you and it is to drive me to further trust in the Savior and further run away from our righteousness, which Isaiah tells us is as filthy rags before God. He walks uprightly without blemish. In other words, what we're being pointed to here is he lived free from contradicting the law. Because what is the standard by which this, this person in Psalm 15 is being judged by? How do we know he's walking uprightly? Well, you and I know that God's standard is his moral law. And so what we're being told here is that Christ walked uprightly, lived free from anything contradicting the law. Never committed anything contrary to the law. Not only did he walk uprightly, he works righteousness. He works righteousness. He that walketh uprightly or blamelessly and worketh righteousness. Now that word worketh or works has the idea of practice. 
And the word righteousness there has the idea of morality. He practices that which is morally right. And again, we're pointed in a different way to Christ fulfilling the law of God. He walked uprightly. He works righteousness. In other words, he lived in full conformity to the law. Not only did he live free from contradicting the law, but he lived in full conformity to the law. And that's how our Shorter Catechism helpfully defines sin. What is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And so Christ, brothers and sisters, as we, as we behold His righteousness here positively described, He walked uprightly without blemish and He worked righteousness. Nothing contrary to, nothing omitted from the law of God. Now let that sink in. We can, so often, when we consider the righteousness of Christ, I think we fail to truly understand the degree of such statements. When you go and you read the Ten Commandments, you can read them like the Pharisees. You can gloss over them and check your boxes and, and convince yourself that it's really not that hard to keep the commandments. But when you examine the commandments in light of the testimony of the Word of God, in light of their positive requirements as well as their negative uh, forbiddances, you will see how far you fall short. And so when we say He lived free from contradicting the law, and when we say He lived in full conformity to the law, that is astounding. And you go and you read his life in the Gospels. And you, you see him doing this all throughout his ministry. All, but it was all throughout his life. You think of the fifth commandment. You think of Christ as a child. Perfectly honoring his father and mother. Never having a wrong thought toward those in authority over him. Even when he knew better than the ones in authority over him. I cannot say that. And I know that you cannot either, if you are honest with yourself. We do not walk without blemish. And we do not work righteousness the way that he did. And so we see our bankruptcy. We always have to remember when we think about Christ and His righteousness, which is one of the most worthy subjects to be considered in the Word of God. And we can never get beyond it. If you think tonight that, that this is maybe old news or, or something that, that we can get beyond, no. We can never move past this. Jehovah said, Canu, the Lord, my righteousness... This is the only thing that gets us into the immediate presence of God for eternity and keeps us there. And therefore, it is worthy of our consideration all the time. But as we think about the Ten Commandments, always remember, He did not do what was forbidden and He did what was required. Every, everything that was commanded against, He didn't do. And all the positive requirements... 
he fulfilled. So he walks uprightly. He works righteousness. And then we're told he speaks the truth in his heart. And speaketh the truth in his heart. The idea of of speaking there, that word, has the idea, uh, could be translated, rehearses. He rehearses the truth. And the heart, as you probably well know in Scripture, is always pointing us to that inmost organ, that inmost of our being. And Christ, we're told here, He speaks the truth in His heart. He rehearses the truth in His inmost being. In other words, what it's saying is that He lived inwardly pure, not just outwardly. The other two could be seen from the outward. Right? He, he, we see people, or you could see people, that they would, they would seem as if they walked without blemish. They, they would seem as if they didn't sin. They would seem as if they, they practiced morality and they didn't commit sin contrary to the law. But yet, when we get to the heart, which is what our Lord Jesus Christ brings us to when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said, But I say unto you, if a man look at a woman, With lust he hath committed adultery with her in his heart. He lived inwardly pure. And you just, again, stop and think about what we're told about the heart of man. Understanding that our Lord Jesus Christ uh, had a humanity uh, that was sinless from birth. That his conception kept him free from the contamination of Adam. And yet... He's made with a nature that is like ours, yet free from sin. But you think of what we're told about our hearts. You know, as we think about Him living inwardly pure, we're forced to think about the fact that we are inwardly defiled from the womb. In sin hath my mother conceived me. Think of our Lord's words in Matthew 15, before we dig in further to what he was, to what's here. Think about what he said about man's heart in relation to what we're thinking about here with him speaking the truth in his heart. He says in Matthew 15, verse 17, to his disciples, Do ye not understand that whatsoever entereth in at the mouth goeth into the belly and is cast out into the draught? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart. And they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashing hands defileth not a man. It is the inward. And it's always been the inward. The Apostle Paul said he had not known sin but by the law. And it was the 10th commandment especially that that caused him to go back over the law and see how he was bankrupt. The law said, thou shalt not covet. And as it's been pointed out before, all the other commandments, there's an outward element to, but the 10th commandment deals with the heart. Thou shalt not covet. And when you trace it back through, you see all of them deal with the heart. We are inwardly defiled, and our Lord tells us that which comes out of your mouth that is wicked proceeds from your heart. But he never had that. 
He lived inwardly pure. And this is interesting as we think about the fact that we're told he speaketh the truth in his heart. Because we might be tempted, as sometimes I think we are, to, to remove ourselves from the practicality of Christ's righteousness. And that's why I've titled the message this way. This is the practical righteousness of Christ. Him walking uprightly and working righteousness and speaking the truth in his heart. Christ, in his humanity spoke the truth in his heart and kept, therefore, his heart free from sin. Think of that. In his humanity, protecting himself, guarding his heart with the word of God. You think of what else we're told in these statements about Christ, because these statements are from God's perspective. Remember that. This is not just some man writing about these characteristics. This is God's word. And think about what we're told in Jeremiah 17, verse 9 and 10. You know these verses. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The Lord knows it. For he says in verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. And so the Father knew the Son's heart as far as His humanity is concerned. He knew His heart. And Christ meditated on the truth day in and day out. He is the blessed man of Psalm 1 who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of, scorn, of the scornful. But his, He meditates on the law of God day and night. And what are we told in Proverbs 24-21? What are we told there? And think about this in relation to Christ. Understanding that he's, he's sinless, He's free from sin, and yet He meditates on the truth. We're told in Proverbs 4-21, well, verse 20 gives us more of the context. My son, attend to my words. Incline thine ear unto my sayings. Let them not depart from thine eyes. Keep them in the midst of thine heart. And that's the same word in Psalm 15. The same word for heart there. Keep them in the midst of thine heart. For they are life unto those that find them and health to all their flesh. Keep thy heart with all diligence. The Lord Jesus Christ perfectly sinlessly, always kept his heart with the word of God. And, and, and you and I fall so short. And as we fall short, we need his righteousness imputed. But as we have his righteousness imputed, we need to imitate it. You, you, you may you wonder, how do I, I get victory over my thoughts? How do I conquer the lust of the flesh? How do I get victory over these things that proceed out of my heart into my mind and come out of my mouth? You meditate on the law of God. You speak the truth in your heart. This is something he did constantly. And, and you see this coming out in a very practical way when the devil comes to Christ. What does he do? He quotes scripture every time from Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy was one of the chief books that the people of God in the Old Testament were to memorize basically because the king was meant to memorize it. Deuteronomy 17, the king was to write him a copy of the law and to keep it with him and to read it. 
And we see Christ in his kingly role, having memorized Deuteronomy and using it to ward off the devil. When the devil comes and tries to twist Scripture, Christ, having meditated on the truth in his heart, was ready to respond with Scripture. And we don't do this perfectly. But by the grace of God, you can do it. He speaks the truth in his heart. These are the positive descriptions of his righteousness. And they are general, yes, but we see them. Oh, you can see them in his life. You see him walking blamelessly. Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. You see him practicing righteousness, working righteousness. And you couldn't see it. But God saw him speaking the truth in his heart. His entire life. Meditation, which is a lost art form. I speak for myself as well in our generation. We do not meditate enough upon the word of God. And therefore we fall short. So this righteousness is described positively. And this righteousness is described negatively. It's described negatively in verse 3. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. You notice they're all negative. And you also notice they all seem to deal with the tongue. They all seem to deal with the instrument of speech. And we'll see why in just a moment. But as we think about this portion this righteousness described in the negative, we see that he doesn't backbite. Now, we don't use that word much in our language, but it has the idea of slander. He doesn't backbite. He doesn't slander. In other words, he doesn't break the ninth commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. But you and I break that commandment every day. Whether we intend to or not, whether we realize it or not. And that is the sobering thing. When you examine the commandments rightly, you see your inability to keep them. And yet Christ, He doesn't backbite. Never slandered. Never spoke something that was wrong. And never spoke something to a wrong end. Now think about that. We can see how He... You can see that you you don't speak something that was wrong. And yet... You can recognize in your own life, as I can in mine, that sometimes we've spoken truth to a wrong end. And if you go and you read, which I suggest you do, because it makes you cast yourself upon the Lord, you go and read the Westminster Larger Catechism's definition of the commandments. And that is one of the sins they note under the ninth commandment. The misuse of the truth, speaking the truth to a wrong end. And Christ never did that. Christ never spoke something to a wrong end, never spoke something that was wrong. You think about these other statements that we're about to read in relation to what we read in James 3. Why, Why does it focus on the tongue here? You know, there's all kinds of things that could be honed in on as we think about the practical righteousness of Christ and as we think about the righteousness necessary to dwell with God. But it hones in on the tongue. Why? 
Well, I think James helps us understand why. In James chapter 3, verse 2. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not... Well, let's back up to verse 1. That'll, that'll be better. My brethren, be not many masters or teachers, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. That's a scary verse. Why does it say that? Because teachers are always talking. And as they're always talking, they have much more occasion to sin. That's frightening. It's frightening for me. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to brittle the whole body. That's the point. If you can control the tongue, you can control everything. Behold, we put bits in, in the horse's mouth that they may obey us. We turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great are driven of fierce winds, yet they are turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth, or wills, or pleases. Even so the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beast, and of birds, and of serpents, and of things in the sea is tamed, and hath been tamed of mankind, but the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. That's why this is honed in on in Psalm 15. Because Christ was able to tame the tongue. No man's ever tamed the tongue but Jesus Christ. And as He tamed the tongue, He tamed the whole body and lived blamelessly. He doesn't backbite. But also we're told He doesn't do evil. And the word there, evil, is the idea of moral evil. But it's added to by the word neighbor, nor doeth evil to his neighbor. And you see what I mean here when we come back to the beginning of the message where I said the two commandments are in view. Loving God and loving our neighbor. So in really in verse 2 you can see that these things are done before God. And in verse 3 we're brought the idea of what he did for his neighbors and what he didn't do to his neighbors is brought in. He doesn't do evil. He never did moral evil to his neighbors. Now here I just want us to see a parallel between the first Adam and the last Adam. Adam did the greatest evil to his neighbors. God said to Adam, In the day that you eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. And I don't know if you've ever studied that or thought about that, but Adam, when he ate of the fruit, murdered the human race. He plunged an entire race into sin and brought the curse upon the world. He did the greatest evil to his neighbors. But the last Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ, who doesn't do evil. Not only, remember, if the, the negative is given, but the positive is true, He not only doesn't do evil, He does the greatest good. And what is the greatest good that He could do to His neighbors is reconcile them to God. 
In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. That's the greatest good. And Christ did it for His neighbors. He doesn't do evil. But you think about how we fail here. We do slander, even unintentionally. We don't have control of our tongues. We do think evil thoughts toward our neighbors. Even if we don't perform them, we think them. They enter into our minds and into our hearts. And we must cast ourselves upon the Lord. He doesn't backbite. He doesn't do evil. And we're also told that He doesn't take up reproaches. He doesn't take up reproaches. Nor taketh up a reproach against His neighbor. And the idea here of take up is, is carrying, spreading. So not only does he not initiate slander, but he doesn't spread slander. He doesn't receive it and carry it on. He's not a talebearer. He's not one who, who goes around spreading gossip. That's what we're told. And again, all these are pointing to the tongue. And they all, they, Christ never gossiped. And I, you just look at yourself in light of this. And you may not be someone who goes around gossiping like you think of. But just think of how your speech can be unguarded at times. And the things you might say that don't need to be said. It may not be wrong. It may be true of the person you're referring to. But it doesn't need to be said. That convicts me. How many times have I done something like that? And if I could open God's book, or if we could play God's movie reel, as it were, and I could see every time I've done it, the times I know of and the times I don't, I know that my jaw would drop, as would yours. But Christ never did that. It's just hard to imagine. It's hard to understand. I remember one brother saying upon meditating and reading the Ninth Commandment in the Westminster Larger Catechism, the details there of what it demands and what it forbids, felt that he should just not speak. Such was the degree of how far he could see himself falling short of that commandment. And surely we can see it. And if you can't see it, may the Lord open your eyes. And really Christ is obeying the law specifically here in Leviticus 19.16. It's important to see that. Leviticus 19.16. What are we told there? Thou shalt not go up and down as a talebearer among thy people, neither shalt thou stand against the blood of thy neighbor. I am the Lord. Never bore tales. Perfectly controlled the tongue. And so we see here a general description of the righteousness of Christ. Described positively, described negatively. And we see him. Fulfilling it all. But now I want us to move on to consider, secondly, 
the specific displays of this righteousness. The specific displays of this righteousness. In verses 4 and 5. For we're told, In whose eyes a vile person is contemned, but he, that honor, but he honoreth them that fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. He that putteth not out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. The specific displays of this righteousness, because it moves from general to specific, we're now given specific examples of His righteousness. And the first thing we want to see is that this righteousness is displayed positively, just like we saw before, except now it's a display of it rather than a description. This righteousness is displayed positively. We're told a hard statement in some ways to understand in verse 4, in whose eyes a vile person is contemned. And I suggest to you what we're being told there about Christ in His righteousness, in His uprightness, is that He righteously despises those that hate God. He righteously despises those that hate God. That's a very key word, righteously despises those that hate God. Because that's, that's the plain reading. In whose eyes a vile or a wicked person is contemned or despised. And what we're being pointed to here, especially in the latter part compared to it, is that Christ evaluates men based on their attitude toward God. And He righteously despises those that hate God. And He secondly righteously esteems those that fear God. That's what we're told. He despises a vile person, but he honors them that fears the Lord. And that brings up all kinds of questions, doesn't it? People will say, you quote Matthew 7, 1, will judge not that you be not judged. And they quote it out of context because it's talking about hypocritical judgment. And this verse shows you that, that Christ was not speaking comprehensively. He tells us later in John's gospel to make righteous judgments. But what we're seeing here is that Christ in His humanity reflects the attitude of God toward the wicked. We're told in Psalm 7:11 that God is angry with the wicked every day. But it does, it does bring up a question. If He righteously despises those that hate God, He righteously despises the wicked. Aren't we told in the Gospels that Jesus was the friend of sinners? And we are. And He was. Jesus was a friend of sinners. But I don't think I'm wrong in saying that He was not the friend of certain Pharisees who rejected Him. And that's what I believe we're meant to take away from this. I'm not going to try and reconcile all the things. I'm just going to accept the truth. And the truth is, that Christ righteously despises those that hate God and He righteously esteems those that fear God. In other words, as we think about Him being the friend of sinners and reconciling these passages, Christ is willing to save all those who come to Him. That is the truth. We can never forget that. But at the same time, the other side of the coin, and the very sobering side of the coin, is that Christ is willing to reject all those that reject Him. Willing to save all those who come, willing to reject 
all that reject him. He righteously despises those that hate God. He does not embrace them. He does not embrace those who hate God because he reflects the righteous character of God. And we have to be careful as we imitate that. Something we have to be very careful about. As I said, as believers, we want to imitate this righteousness having had it imputed to us. We want to imitate the character of our Lord, but we must be careful. Jesus had perfectly righteous anger. And we can imitate that to a degree. But we must be careful. But He righteously esteems those that fear God. He respects those that revere God. And as we think about that, you and I both know in the greater context of the Scriptures, those that fear the Lord are those that have been brought into covenant with the Lord. Those have been shown the grace of God. They're not better people than the other people in verse 4. But they're those whom God has worked in their lives and brought them into covenant with Himself through Christ. And it is because of that that He righteously esteems them. In other words, Christ perfectly judged all men by a perfect standard. But also, and this was probably the highlight for me in studying this passage and thinking about His righteousness displayed positively. He unchangingly commits to all promises. That's what we're told in the end of verse 4. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. He unchangingly commits to all promises. Now that... I'm sure we could go and we could search the Gospels and we can find that true in many ways, in many examples. But there is one ultimate way, there is one ultimate example of our Lord Jesus Christ swearing to His own hurt and changing not. And that is Christ's promise to save His people. Think about that with me. Christ promised He swore to his own hurt and changed not. Just one one reference here. Luke 22, 44. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we're not going to get into all the things that could be considered there, but just... Think about what we're saying. He unchangingly commits to all promises. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Who of us here could even begin to enter into the sufferings of our Lord? What sinner here, if there's someone here who doesn't know Christ, could begin to enter in to what He endured for the salvation of His people? He unchangingly commits to all promises. He swore to His own hurt and didn't change. He 
He sweat drops of blood for your soul. And he never stepped away. Never backed away from his commitment to save his people from their sins. He swore to his own hurt and changed not. Praise his name. Hallelujah, what a Savior. So this righteousness is displayed positively. And this righteousness is displayed negatively. We're told as well in verse 5, He that putteth not out his his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent. Now we're back to the negative. And why these specific examples? Well, it must be because they comprehend the character, the practical character of man. His perfect judgment, his perfect commitment, and his perfect stewardship of all things that the Lord had given to him and all the positions that he was in. Because in verse 5, we're told he, he doesn't put out his money to usury. In other words, as we think about it more generally, he does not take advantage of people. That's a righteous characteristic. He doesn't put out his money to usury. That is, with interest. The idea is that it's unjust usury. The Old Testament didn't absolutely forbid interest to be gained on money. But here, what we're being pointed to, I suggest to you, is Christ's gospel philanthropy. That He gives and asks nothing in return. That He gives of Himself to purchase His people. That He gives salvation without money, without price. Ho ye that thirst and hunger, come and eat and drink. That's what our Lord tells us. It's gospel philanthropy. He does not take advantage of people. He doesn't give in order to receive. Blessed are they that do such. And so as we think about that, we might also think, well, Christ does... Uh, demand repentance of his people. He does demand certain things of his people as they come to him, and he does. But he makes you willing to do those things by his love, not by law. You, you, you want to turn from sin and come to Christ because he draws you to himself and because you, your eyes are open to see what he's done for your soul. And so... He puts not out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent. And that's really the idea of a judge. We're pointed back to the idea of judgment. In this position, he had, there's obviously implied in verse 5, there's a position in view that he could take reward against the innocent. And what's the ultimate opposite to that? Well, the opposite to taking reward, to not taking reward against the innocent is what Judas did to our Savior. That's the ultimate display of wickedness. To betray the sinless Son of God for 30 pieces of silver. And yet Christ, we're told, He doesn't take reward against the innocent. In other, word, he, other words, He does not violate justice but he perfectly upholds that which is right in the eyes of God. And he will always uphold justice. 
And as we think about that, that should breed assurance when we think about what we read in Romans 3 concerning the Lord God, that He is just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. That there's no violation of justice when God redeems a sinner. And why? Because they are legally viewed as righteous in His sight. He does not violate justice. These are the specific displays of Christ's righteousness. Positively and negatively. And as we close, the end of the psalm is a fitting conclusion. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. That's the conclusion. And that's the assurance of the answer to verse 1. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that doeth these things shall never be moved. All the things in between those two statements, they're like bookends. And this is a statement of assurance that whoever's done these things in between, whoever's lived perfectly before God as he has detailed in this psalm, he will never be moved. Never be removed is the idea. Because the first question says that there's a place that there, there is to be dwelt in with the Lord in His tabernacle and in His holy hill. And he that doeth these things shall never be moved. He'll never be removed. Christ has earned the right to be in the eternal presence of God and will never be removed. And so, as we think about that, and Christ perfectly fulfilling everything listed here. You and I fall infinitely short of everything listed here. And so I come back to where we started at the beginning. You need this righteousness imputed to you. And that's the evangelistic appeal of this psalm. It is setting before you that which you do not have. So that you will plead with God to impute it to you, to credit it to your account, to make you legally righteous, to give you that which you can't do, to make you that which you are not, so that you can dwell in His presence for eternity. Do not trust in anything else. Don't trust in your religious observance. Don't trust in your, your coming to church, your reading your Bible. There's nothing else for you to trust in. You need this righteousness. And then, as that is the evangelistic appeal, the need for this righteousness to be imputed, the appeal to all of us here who have that, again, is to imitate this righteousness to the glory of God. Not in a way that puts us in bondage. Not in a way that, that causes us to, to feel lack of assurance of our salvation. But we are to imitate. To be imitators of Christ. Paul said to be ye followers of me even as I am of Christ. And so as you read through this psalm. I trust you have been convicted as I have and I trust you've been given things to consider as to how we should go about our daily life. 
meditating on the law of God, guarding our tongue, praying with the psalmist, set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth and keep the door of my lips. Judging people righteously. Not taking advantage of people to gain for ourselves and not perverting justice in any situation. That's what the Lord did. That, that's really what we are to imitate here to the glory of God. And he that doeth these things, though it is in Christ that we have this assurance, he that doeth these things shall never be moved. Having it imputed to you, you will dwell with God in his tabernacle, in his holy hill, as his righteous people. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank thee for your word. We thank thee that you have given us such pictures of Christ. And Lord, we, we do confess that we can never do these things the way he did them. But Lord, we're thankful that there is a man at thy right hand who has lived in such a way. And Lord, we're thankful that you have said, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. And Lord, we pray you'll depart us tonight meditating on this. And Lord, if there's one here, just one, who has not had the righteousness of Christ imputed to them, Oh Lord, please stir them to call upon Thee. To, to recognize the nearness of the Lord. To recognize the call of God upon their soul. To turn. And to be justified in the person and through the work of Christ. Lord, we pray, move upon that soul. Maybe there's one listening, Lord who thinks themselves a good person. Lord, please seal to them that they are not. Cause them to read over this psalm and see how they fall short and cause them to cast themselves upon Thee and trust in Christ alone. Depart us all, Lord, with Thy grace. Attend us throughout the week with the power of the Holy Spirit that we may live lives righteously before God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.